chapter 2. Continuing our series through the book of Malachi. This is message number 5 in that series. The title of this message is Coming with Fire. So Malachi chapter 2, and we're just picking up that last verse there, verse 17, and we'll be going through verse number 5 in chapter 3. Excuse me. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, wherein have we wearied him? When you say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them, or where is the God of judgment? Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old, and as in former years. And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, and against the adulterers, and against the false swearers, and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless that turn aside the stranger from his right. And fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts." So the book of Malachi, as we have um, seen from the beginning of this study, is a a series of conflicts between God and Israel, Israel that had returned to Jerusalem and returned to the land um, after the exile into Babylon. And so Malachi is writing at a time that's about 100 years after that um, they had begun to return to the land. Uh, the, the walls had been rebuilt, the temple had been rebuilt, they had um, reestablished the um, priesthood and the sacrifices and, and all of those various things. And so Malachi is, is writing during that time, just, just about 400 years before um, the birth of Jesus, so close to that time of the time of the, of the New Testament. Now the third conflict between God and Israel is what we looked at last time, which is most of the last part of chapter number 2. And that conflict was the fact that the men of Israel had profaned God's covenant. And they had done this by divorcing their covenant wives and marrying these idol-worshipping women from the pagan nations around them. Now, we looked at last time how the old covenant law had many different regulations regarding marriage and divorce and and even polygamy. And these these provisions of the old covenant law, they preserved the lineage and the identity of the tribes of Israel, particularly the line of the Messiah, the son of David, um, was preserved through, um, through these laws. And they also preserved the inheritances of the tribes so that the possessions of one tribe didn't pass to another tribe or those inheritances didn't pass to um, nations outside of Israel. Those laws also provided protection for women and children um, as pertaining to their living as well as um, their rights of inheritance. Now, it might seem that um, those in in Israel would have had no interest 
in God or following him, but that wasn't the case. In other words, I'm saying if you looked at, at the lives and what is said about them, it might seem like, well, they're essentially living their life as if God doesn't really exist, as if his um, law uh, and his covenant with them didn't matter. But it wasn't really the case because what we found out in that conflict was that they were maintaining their religious observances. They were even trying to compensate for their failures in other areas by adding many tears and things to their offerings. But Malachi the prophet told them God would not accept that from them. So God is just not impressed with emotional displays and once-a-week performances, if it's at least that often. Now, this was a common problem in Israel before the exile ever occurred. And, and you can read the warnings in the prophets, and they repeatedly are, are touching on this. But it continued to be a problem after that they had returned. And essentially what we see here in, in the book of Malachi that is supported um, really throughout the Bible is that you cannot worship your way to righteousness before God. There's no amount of... Um, religious rituals or rites or observances or, or whatever that it might be. There's no, there's no amount of worship performance that will make us righteous before God. So no matter who it is that we may fool, and oftentimes I'm afraid that the worst of it is that, that we fool ourselves um, in, in thinking that we are doing something, we will never fool God. And the priests, you recall, they, they're somewhat shocked that these charges will be made against them. How, how is it that we've despised God's name? These men of Israel, how is it that we have profaned the covenant? And the priests were guilty as well. Well, now we've come to the fourth of the six conflicts between God and Israel. And this conflict begins there in verse 17 of chapter 2, goes through verse number 5 here in chapter 3. So the complaints that Israel had against God are essentially answered by his complaints against them. Now that might seem like that it, it sort of works out to a stalemate. And if you've ever had maybe some sort of, of conflict with another person, maybe that's been the result. Um, you, you say, you know, well, listen, I've got a lot of problems with you. Uh, you've done this, you've done that, whatever. And then that person answers and says, well, you haven't been a joy either. You've done this and you've done that. And so you sort of come to a stalemate. Either, either somebody is going to break and, and you know, we're, there's going to be a reconciliation take place or essentially there's just, a, a, just sort of a, a parting of the ways, an irreconcilable sort of differences. So it might kind of seem that way between God and Israel because they've got a lot of complaints about God and God's got a lot of complaints about them. But that's not the way things work when the God of heaven and earth is involved. So it seems that Israel had thought that God hasn't been true to his word, and so they couldn't be held accountable. And really that is, is a very human way to think. When someone has wronged us, we feel like that we are justified in wronging them in return in a retaliation or maybe just wronging someone else or or in some other way doing something wrong because well I've been wronged I I've been hurt I've been this I've been that well God says otherwise in uh, this passage as well as as many others so as we look at this 
we look at verses 17 and verse 1 of chapter 3, where God describes how that he has become worn and weary with Israel. And then in verses 2 to 5, where God speaks of that day of his coming and what that day will bring. So let's begin here with verse number 17, as God has been wearied. It says, Ye have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, Wherein have we wearied him? When ye say, Everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them, or where is the God of judgment? So this conflict begins with the statement that Israel has wearied the Lord. And that word that's used there, it means to be exhausted as from work. And, and we've all probably had that experience where we've, we've just, sometimes people refer to it as hitting a wall or, or something like that, where you've, you've just, you're just to the point where you just cannot work anymore. You just can't do anything else. You are just going to have to rest, whether it's, whether it's mentally or, or even sometimes just physically. You just can't even sometimes hold the tools any longer. Like you're going to have to get some rest. Well, this, is a, this word speaks of being that kind of exhausted. There's been an exertion and, 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 and there's an exhaustion um, that, that cannot go on. Now, but rather than the fact that this has come from some sort of hard labor that has exhausted God, it says that he has been, become exhausted from enduring their words. So the implication here is that God has had long patience with Israel, and in turn, they have worn his patience out. Now, of course, God never literally runs out of patience. God never literally becomes exhausted or weary, as this word implies. Like Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 28 says, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard? That the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. And that's the same word that's used there. There's no searching of his understanding. Well, we encounter this sort of thing at different times in the Bible, where the Bible seems to say that, that God is affected or, or, or something about him. And then you can find another statement that seems to be saying the opposite. I mean, this statement in Isaiah is saying God doesn't become weird. You can't exhaust God. You can't uh, exhaust his, his patience in that sense. Well, obviously the point of this expression is that, that God is about to act. God has had long patience, and God has endured their words, but God is, is going to take action. And we'll see that in, in the following verses. Now, there are two particular words or sayings of Israel that that have wearied God in, in, this, in this conflict. On the one hand, they have said that those who do evil in God's sight are good and that he delights in them or is pleased with them. Now, obviously, it's highly doubtful um, that the priests had, or, or even any of, of those among Israel had stood up and, and said, um, listen, go, go do evil because that's good and God will love it, and, and God will love you for it. No, that's, no, that's not the way it's, it's put. The way that it's put is in the way of the approval of their doing what is actually evil, according to God's word, and calling that good and saying that God is pleased with it. 
So what this means is, again, they have perverted and they have abused God's word. So that what God has called evil, they are calling good. We've already seen um, complaint against the priests for mishandling of the word of God. And this, of course, is further example. Now, an immediate example um, would come from the previous verses that, that we looked at last time. They had betrayed the covenant and their covenant wives. And, and they were, were doing this. And, and re- remember, the response on their part was, how, how have we done that? How have we done that? And he spoke about these marriages that they have made with these um, idolatrous wives. So there's, there's an example of how they were calling evil good and saying that God was pleased with it. Well, what they were doing was what we oftentimes refer to as rationalizing or justifying their actions. So just an example of, of how that we see this sort of thing um, today when someone rationalizes their actions. So you have a person who wants to do X, and that just is just anything, um, and God's word plainly says that doing X is a sin. So you have a person that wants to do something for whatever reason, they want to do something, that it's very clear from God's word that that thing is a sin. That thing is something God has said not to do. Now we've talked about, we've studied, uh, we went through a, a series in Sunday school on, on the conscience. We've um, gone through the book of Romans, particularly looking at, at Romans uh, 14 and, and the last part of verse 15. And so we, we certainly understand that there are things in the Bible that God has commanded us to do. We must do these things and not to do them would be sin. There are things in the Bible that God has clearly commanded that we are not to do and therefore to do them is sin. But then there are also things that God hasn't given us any particular command about and that there are ways in which we have to go about and, and um, you know, work out whether the doing of them is going to be good and profitable um, or not. So we're not talking here about that sort of thing, that sort of liberty of conscience area. We're talking about someone that wants to do something that the Bible plainly says is sinful to do. And so the person rationalizes, well, you know, I really think that God just wants me to be happy. God God wants me to be happy and God wants me to have a good life and doing X will make me happy. So doing X must be good and it must be all right. And that must really be what God wants for me. Or they admit that, well, you know, doing that is normally a sin, but I'm in some sort of special situation, unlike any other human being has ever been in, that justifies the doing of it in this instance. And if you think that's all that far-fetched, you've obviously never been a pastor. So we do rationalize just the way that he's talking about those among Israel were doing. You are saying that doing evil is good and that God is pleased with it. But he was also wearied by something else. And that last part of verse number 17 is the second saying that he was wearied of. They were asking, where is the God of judgment? Now, 
This is in reference to the fact that they had returned to Jerusalem. Again, they had, they had been there the first uh, wave that returned. It had been about 100 years uh, or so by the time that Malachi is writing. So they've been over 100 years. They've, they've been back in Jerusalem. And they have a temple, and they have walls, and they have a priesthood, and they have the services of the temple and things going on. Of course, there's no Ark of the Covenant um, there in, in that because that was, that was lost by, by then. They've recovered some of the golden vessels and such. However, they're still just occupying a small portion of the land that had been promised to Israel through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they're certainly not in any way self-governing. They are under the the Persian control. They've got all these nations round about them that are also under Persian control. And so they're sort of fellow citizens, in in, in a sense, with many of these other nations. Nations that, by the way, uh, deeply resented them being there, um, did not want them there, and were were doing all all that they could, it seemed like, um, to cause them problems and prevent them from being there. And so this, where is the God of judgment? was something that they were saying because even though they're back in the land, where, where is the king? Where is the son of David that is supposed to be sitting on the throne in Jerusalem? Where are the enemy nations that have been defeated and subdued and brought under subjection? And where is the nation of Israel that has been restored and to this promised land? In other words... This was a complaint that acknowledged that that return that began under Zerubbabel had not culminated in the kingdom vision that had been prophesied beginning all the way back with Moses. So what are they saying? Ultimately, they're just questioning if God had truly been faithful to his word. And then God answers in verse number 1 of chapter 3. Behold, I will send my messenger... And he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. So God answers Israel with this prophetic declaration. Now the word for messenger that he uses is the same word that's oftentimes translated angel um, in the Old Testament. And the word for angel, that, or the word angel that we think of, oftentimes refers to the spirit beings that we think of as angels. But it doesn't always mean that specifically. So rather, messenger, the word itself, simply means one who is sent with a message. One who has been dispatched with some sort of duty to perform. That's what the word itself means. It's oftentimes applied to what we think of as angels, but it doesn't, doesn't only mean that or only apply Um, to those particular beings. God says, I'm going to send my messenger before me. Now, he affirms here, he is coming. Where's the God of judgment? Oh, I am coming. And I'm going to send my messenger before me to prepare my way. Now, this is a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah, though it has not been fulfilled entirely. Uh, as is oftentimes the case with prophetic prophecies in the Old Testament about 
um, the Messiah. Oftentimes we find that that there were those things that were fulfilled in Christ's first coming to the earth, and there are things that are, are going to be fulfilled when he returns to the earth. Well, this is the case here as well. Isaiah also prophesied about this messenger, and so this would have been um, 300 years earlier than Malachi, and it would have been before the carrying away of Israel, before the, the destruction of Jerusalem. Isaiah 40 and verse 3, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now the New Testament is clear that John the Baptist fulfilled this part of the prophecy. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 3, For this is he, speaking about John, For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 10, Jesus said, For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. So clearly John is this messenger that was spoken of who would be sent before the coming of the Lord. And it would be about four centuries after that this was written when that would take place. And then he says that the Lord whom you seek, the one that you're asking about, he says he, he will come suddenly to his temple. And that word for suddenly doesn't indicate time. In other words, God's not saying I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come there immediately or I'm going to come there very soon or very shortly. That's not what the word is, is indicating. It's indicating actually the opposite. It's indicating that his coming will be instantly and it will be surprisingly. So this term in the, in the Old Testament, that it, when it is used to speak of something you know, coming suddenly, it typically is a warning. And it is usually joined with that there to some sort of coming judgment, some sort of coming calamity, some sort of disaster um, that is coming. It is a warning. And he says that he will come to his temple. And the one that will come to his temple is the messenger of the covenant. Now, this is the same word that was used of John, but clearly speaking of the Lord himself, the messenger, the angel of the covenant. I believe this will be a reference to um, the promises of the covenant like in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse number 15. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of of thy brethren like unto me. Unto him ye shall hearken. We recently went through Genesis and we saw um, a few messianic prophecies there in Genesis and referred to some of the others also that are in the, the Pentateuch including this one here in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse Number 15, this angel of the covenant, he will come. And of course, we see this prophecy is emphasized by the repetition there at the end of the verse. But that brings us to the next part of this passage there, beginning with verse number 2 and going through verse 5. Because God is ultimately prophesying here about a day, a particular future day. And it's a day that it seems like Israel is longing for. It's a day that they are looking for and asking about and are even questioning whether God is truly faithful to his word because that day hasn't yet come. But here's what Israel needs to consider. What's that day going to bring? What is that day going to be like for Israelites like these? Starting in verse number 2. But... Who may abide the day of his coming? 
And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. So Israel's thoughts about the Lord's coming were very focused on a couple of things. One of those was the blessings that were going to come to them. And and when you look through the Old Testament different places, Isaiah has some um, very, very um, vivid descriptions of, of that kingdom when, when the Messiah comes. And, and there's other places that have some of those descriptions as well. And they were very focused on all of those, bless, those blessings, the, the desert um, blossoming and, and blooming like the rose and the, and the trees of the hills um, clapping their hands and, and uh, uh, milk and honey just flowing down and all, all of these great blessings that are spoken of about that time of the kingdom when Messiah comes. They were focused on a lot of those and they were also focused on another aspect and that is judgment on the enemy nations. Because it is a time when God's vengeance is going to be unleashed on those that oppose him and his Christ. And they were looking very forward to those things. But this is where they were making their mistake. The word for abide, God asks, who's going to abide the day of his coming? The word for abide It means to stand or endure. It's like asking, but who's going to be left when he comes? Because there's going to be a great, sometimes it's it's described in the prophets and even in the New Testament as a great shaking of the heaven and the earth. So that, and you might think of it like a, um, maybe like if you went out and had a, a picnic and you know, you spread a blanket out on the ground and you've got grass and stuff on there and you've got food crumbs and everything else and after your your picnic's over you're going to pack up and you're going to go home and what do you do you pick up that blanket and you shake it out you shake all that stuff off of it you don't want to put all that grass and crumbs and everything in your car you shake it out and so sometimes what God is going to do in the day of the Lord when he comes to the earth is described that way he's going to shake the heaven and the earth and there's going to be things that are going to be going to be um, shaken away, and there's things that are going to remain. So this is what he's asking. Who's going to remain when that day comes? Now, the day that is referred to is what is referred to or called the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh. This is something referred to frequently in the Old Testament, a future time of judgment. It's also referred to in the New Testament, and it is graphically described in the vision of Revelation chapter number 19 when the Lord comes riding on the, on the white horse and all that. The day of the Lord is the future day when Jesus returns to the earth in vengeance. Understand, this is not the Lamb to be slaughtered. This is the lion of the tribe of Judah to tear down his enemies and to establish perfect righteousness in his kingdom on earth. And those enemies include his enemies within Israel as well as the nations of the earth. So the thrust of this question is, Do you think you can stand his coming? Do you think that you will endure his coming? After his coming shakes the heavens and the earth, will you remain or will you have been blown away like the chaff in the wind? Now he introduces here two different images 
And they're oftentimes associated, and they're typically used as images of judgment and of purging. Uh, And that is the refiner's fire. The refiner's fire is a, a hot fire, a smelting furnace. And this soap, this fuller's soap, now the soap that's being referred to is lye that would be used for the purpose. And fuller's here is, is actually a verb. Um, it's actually a verb that's used here. And it, it's, it refers to the, to the act of fulling. Um, and the process of fulling, which the word itself means to wash by, by treading on. So the fulling process involved treading and kneading and beating clothes um, or cloths, whatever the case may be, um, to make them clean. You know, you didn't have uh, a ringer washer and you didn't have uh, a washing machine with an agitator. You, you didn't have the, those sort of things. So they would be, those clothes would be um, immersed in that the, with the soap and the solution and scrubbed and they'd be, be trampled on, they'd be tread on, they'd be um, kneaded, they'd be beat, all, all these different things to, to get all of the stains out and all of the dirt and grime and everything out and, and to make them clean. Verse number three, and he shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. So the coming of the Lord, they are told, is the coming of a refiner. They were asking, where is the God of judgment? Oh, I'm going to come. And when I do, I will come as a refiner. He says he will purify the sons of Levi or the Levites or the priests, those that had been named earlier as those who were despising the altar of the Lord and were teaching Israel to despise God's name. Now, the refining of gold and silver obviously refers to the heating of them in a fire to remove the dross. And this was something that could be carried out numerous times in order to achieve achieve higher levels of purity. And so sometimes you'll see a reference uh, to like being refined seven times. In other words, repeating this process and repeating this process to, to coming to the, to the purest form um, of gold and silver that is possible. Now, this is, this is a common image that's used in the Old Testament to speak of the future purging of Israel. And again, just like that imagery of shaking, there's a, an image that Isaiah uses in, in one of those passages that refers to like the, like the fruits on a, on a tree and shaking that tree um, so that all the ripe fruits um, fall off and, and, and the unripe will remain. Th- those types of images, but also the refining process. Well, in the refining process, the, the metal is heated up um, until it is molten, and it is the dross that comes to the top, and it is, it is removed, and I'm sure that you're probably somewhat familiar with that. It refers to a judgment on Israel to purge out the unbelieving among them and to leave the nation with the remnant who repent and believe and embrace their Messiah. In other words, that's the purpose of God's purging judgment. And it's only the Lord's purification that will make them fit to offer to the Lord. And I just say again that you cannot worship your way to righteousness. There's no amount of religious observance or religious performance that you can can do 
to make you righteous before God. The Lord makes righteous in order to worship and serve him. Sort of the other way around. Verse 4. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old and as in the former years. So now he's extending this purging. It's not just the priests, not just the sons of Levi, but Judah and Jerusalem. And essentially this is just uh, a manner of speaking, just extending this to, um, to Israel, as all, all those, as Israel was represented there by those that had returned to the land. And then verse 5. And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the, hirelings in, the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside uh, the stranger from his right, and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. So it's almost as if verse 5 is anticipating an objection. Now, we've seen as we've worked through Malachi that statements are made and there's sort of an objection or a question that comes from Israel. And so you can, you can just imagine in Israel's mind the question, well, what do we need to be purged of? Why would we need to be refined as fire? Why would we need to be tread upon by the fuller with the, with the soap and, and to be cleaned? What would we be, need to be cleaned of? So it's almost as if this um, verse anticipates that sort of question. God says, I'm coming, but my coming is going to mean a purging, a purging and, a, and a purification. And it's almost as if they say, from what? And then God responds, I will be a swift witness against them. So the Lord is going to purge out essentially those who break his covenant. And as you look at verse number 5, you're seeing a number of things enumerated from the old covenant law that they were um, commanded to do or not do and that they were guilty of breaking and not keeping. And again, this is something you can find commonly throughout the prophets in different stages of Israel's history of them being warned about these very sins. Now, when he says he's going to purge out the sorcerers, this would refer to those who commune with evil spirits in, in some way, um, seeking power, seeking knowledge. Um, and there's various ways um, that that um, is sought and that is practiced, and that's, but that's what is referred to there. Adultery, which of course refers to um, breaking faith in marriage in, in any number of ways, a pretty broad term. False swearers. Now, false swearers refers to those who are false witnesses. Um, and that is typically what we would refer to as perjury. Um, so the, the Old Covenant forbids someone from being a false witness. In other words, the Old Covenant justice required that there would be two or three witnesses to speak to someone before uh, their guilt could be determined and, and them to be properly punished. But the law also had provisions in it for those who turned out to be false witnesses. So if someone stood forth to say that they had seen or heard someone do this or that and that they were guilty, but they lied, and it, and it was, was known to be, uh, however that it came about that they lied, then they would be punished by the punishment that that person would receive, according to the law. Now, um, you know, I'm, I'm certainly no... Um, expert in legal matters, I feel like that sort of a penalty would probably go a long way toward um, righting a number of wrongs and justice systems we see uh, in our country as well as around the world. 
But a false witness was punished. And he says these false swearers, who obviously were not being punished in that day as they were supposed to, those who were oppressing the hireling in his wages. Now, the word means defrauding. Um, so they were defrauding the wages of a hired laborer. So they, <clears throat> they, were, either, they were either finding um, some way or some technicality of paying less than they were supposed to or, or maybe even of not paying at all or delaying that, that payment. Um, there were various laws in the, in the Old Covenant pertaining to that. Um, and so the, the oppression or the extortion of those, and, and includes the widows and the fatherless, and extorting the widows and the fatherless, taking advantage of them. Uh, so this would be done sometimes by um, seizing their properties and, and, and various other things. And then he speaks of the strangers, turning aside to strangers. In other words, the mistreatment of foreigners in their midst. As the Old Covenant also had laws pertaining to that as to what they were to do. And then by those who do not fear me, he says, meaning that those that do not reverence and obey God. And he says, saith the Lord of hosts. And that's not a real common name, especially in a, in a setting like this, Lord of hosts, because that's actually a very, that's a very military type name of God. It's a name that is most often associated with, with judgment and God leading his hosts into battle um, in some way, and of course, this um, would speak um, of that future day of the Lord. So, as we think about this particular passage, it gives us an opportunity to step back and think about what really matters to God. As you have seen, as we've been going through Malachi to this point, that the priests or the, or the people of Israel. They're constantly surprised by these charges against them. How, well, how have we done that? How have we done that? How have we done this? How are we guilty of that? How could that be? They're constantly surprised. And one of the reasons why I think they're surprised is because they're confused about what really matters to God. They had mistakenly thought that the rituals of worship were the things that really mattered. And as long as they got that right, the rest didn't really matter that much. And of course, they weren't getting that exactly right. And I wonder how many today fall into this same way of thinking, as if in our minds we, we parse out, what are those things that really, really matter to God? And so as long as I go to the right church, as long as it has the, the right pedigree, and has the right name on the sign, and it does all of the right things in, in the services that, that they're supposed to do, then life outside of that building, life outside the other you know six days out of the week, that doesn't really matter all that much. Because we went to the right place on Sunday, and we did things the right way. We got it right there on Sunday, and that's what really matters to God. And in the rest of my, rest of my life, well, you know, sure, there's some, there's some general guidelines that we can follow, but, but this is what really matters to God, that we get this ritual right. Well, worship, of course, does matter. Certainly not, not wanting to imply in any way that it doesn't. It does matter. But it's not all that matters. And it's not what we could say that it matters the most in the way that I believe that the people of Israel were thinking. And again, the way that many people today think. 
we can turn the worship of God into just a um, list of, of, of rituals and procedures and things that, that we just need to ensure that we get right. But is that what God requires? You know, another thought from this passage is that it reminds us there is a day of judgment coming. It's so easy to get caught up in the day-to-day life and the goings-on, whether it's in, in my small you know, circle of, of experience or um, more broadly in, in the country and, and in the world at large. And it's so easy to get caught up in, the, in that day-to-day. And we don't really think about future judgment as much or in the way that we should. And that's what Israel is being told to consider here. Do you think that you would stand his coming? Do you think you would endure? Do you think that you would remain after that he refines Israel like a refiner through the fire? After he treads and kneads and, and, and beats out Israel with the fuller soap, do you think you would be among those that remain? Well, they had complained about the Lord not coming, and they hadn't really considered whether or not they were ready for his coming. They had all this list of complaints about all these things that God hadn't done and really had just never, never considered, am I ready for God to come? And, of course, that is very much a question that should be pressed upon us today. Yes, we've got jobs, we've got family, we've got responsibilities, we've got things that must be done, we've got things that we have to keep track of and be concerned about and all of that sort of thing. But, but are you ready for Jesus Christ to return? And that is what we are told in the Scripture, that no man knows that day or the hour. And we're to be always ready and always looking and always living in light of what the Bible says is the blessed hope for those who trust 